Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're listening to this show, there's a chance that you're interested in the foundation of the modern state system. The podcasters who produce this month's featured Agora podcast, Land of Leviathan, are interested in that too. In fact, they are both academic professionals studying the subject in the field of political science. But even highfalutin professor types need to kick back once in a while, and when political science types like Peter and Brock kick back, they do so by talking about pop culture in the context of the serious subjects they study in their day jobs. How would the state system respond to a zombie apocalypse? Would the Jedi fundamentally destabilize the monopoly on force? In what ways does Sauron resemble an orcish Nelson Mandela? If these and other ideas sound like the kind of thing you would enjoy, be sure to check out the Lands of Leviathan podcast. His wife, Egeltrude, was crowned with him, and their son Lambert received the title of king and joint emperor. Adelbert of Tuscany now resolved on making his official submissions to the new ruler. Berengar alone persisted in refusing to recognize him, and maintained his independence in his old domain, the Mark of Freely. He even retained some supporters outside its limits who objected to Guy's Burgundian origins and reproached him with the favor which he showed to certain of his compatriots who had followed him from beyond the Alps, such as Anskar, on whom he bestowed the mark of Ivrai. Nevertheless, the new emperor, at the beginning of May 891, held a great placidium at Pavia, at which, to satisfy the demands of the prelates, he promulgated a long capitulary enacting the measures necessary to protect church property. On the same occasion, anxious no doubt to secure the support of the clergy, he made numerous grants to the bishops. Quote from Volume 3 of the Cambridge Medieval Histories. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and today... As with most days, I will be your host as we journey towards Wittenberg and Westphalia. Last time we took a quick journey through the history of Western Francia, between the death of Louis the Stammerer and the crowning of Hugh Capet. I was remiss last time in not mentioning that Hugh Capet's name literally means Hugh, who wears a cape. This, of course, makes Hugh the holder of a very stylish regnal epithet, something you too can possess if you donate to the show by going to wittenberg.westphalia.weebly.com and going to the store page, just an FYI. But today, we will return to the main narrative that we left off in the last full episode, episode 21. 
In that episode, we saw the storm break on the Gadeshi and the Empire, when Charles the Fat's abdication set off a bewildering buzz of activity, as the various court factions around Europe scrambled to put forward their favorite candidate as King, Emperor, Grand Poobah, whatever. Arnulf got the throne in East Francia, while Western Francia dissolved into the severe faction fighting we examined last episode. Burgundy, Provence, Aquitaine, and the Breton Peninsula all slipped out of central control as various magnates either vied for the throne or simply ignored central authority. Within this context, the party representing the established order had brought in Guy III of Spoleto to be the new king, but they were caught off guard by the election of Odo as king, despite a complete lack of legitimacy. The establishment party was left scrambling for candidates as Guy recognized a bad situation and legged it. Back in Italy, Berengar of Friuli had had himself crowned, and it seemed like he had things sewn up until Guy returned from the north. Guy's return opened a civil war that kind of never really ended. As we saw last time, Guy quickly flipped most of Italy to his side. Let's ease into today's episode by briefly expanding on this process. Beyond the political and personal advantages we discussed before, we should also note that Guy's chances in Italy were probably not hurt by his expanded retinue of Franco-Burgundian soldiers who followed him back into Italy from the north. While not a large enough retinue to conquer western Francia, this force was probably enough to make waves in the comparatively smaller and more fractious political landscape of northern Italy. Of course, Guy's chances were put into overdrive by the support he enjoyed from the Pope and the clergy, particularly since, as we saw in the crossover episode with Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast, many of the powerful cities of Italy were at this time being directly governed by bishops. A case in point was one Anselm of Milan, who at this point governed said city, and delivered it into Guy's hands early. Given Milan's position in the middle of the Po Valley, and, even at this time, extreme strategic and economic power, Berengar's freedom of movement was swiftly curtailed. But this was not to be a war of rapid movements and long campaigns. Rather, the two would march out, fight a battle, make peace, and then begin remarshalling their forces. Initially, Guy and Berengar fought to a draw, with a slight advantage for Berengar, but it became clear that Arnulf of Carinthia was looking to invade northern Italy, putting Berengar directly in his path. Berengar managed to avoid that threat diplomatically, but at the cost of an overly neutral peace with Guy and acknowledging Arnulf as overlord. Possibly as a result, Berengar was left with an internally divided force at the romantically named Battle of Trebia in 889. This turned out to be a major defeat for Berengar, and he and Guy again made peace, this time with Berengar boxed into his home territory of Friuli. With Berengar defeated, Guy took a victory lap and asked the Pope to crown him emperor, which he did, making Guy the first non-Carolingian to be emperor. This brings us back up to 891, which is where we left off last time. So the Gadeshi were riding high. Guy started issuing capitularies, sort of like executive orders, which were the main way administrative regulations or laws were created under the Carolingian legal system. Things seemed to be getting back to normal, and a lot of even Frankish nobles liked the way Guy did business. Guy seemed to have it all. Power, popularity, and family. Did I not mention his family? Well, there was the dense network of Gadeshi cousins down in Spoleto, of course, and all the Lombards and powerful Frankish families tied to them by marriage alliances, most notably the Dukes of Tuscany, who were the third of the three most powerful ducal families in Italy at this time. They could have easily swung things in the favor of Berengar or Guy, but they preferred to stay neutral, 
making peace and an eventual acquiescence to whoever came out on top. This marriage alliance probably helped keep them sweet. Then there was Guy's nephew Guy, son of Guy the Rage, who was quietly given Guy III's old territory on the borders of the Papal States at around this time. But then Guy had his own family as well. Like all the Gadeshi men in our story, Guy was blessed with a productive marriage to a politically advantageous woman. Her name was Egeltrude, and, as her name might suggest, she was the daughter of a powerful Lombard family. While undoubtedly their relationship was initially built on her huge tracts of land, and while the scant historical record can give us little in the way of an understanding of their relationship, let us just say at this point that she bore Guy a son, Lambert, and that she was a daughter of the Lombard nobility which means that she had spent her entire life living in a pit of vipers. Of course, we have no way of knowing this, but even if she didn't like Guy all that much, I tend to think she must have at least been somewhat relieved by the change of scenery to be living in Guy's court, where the main threat to one's life was not one's relatives. One person who was maybe not so happy at this point was the Pope, Leo V. We saw last time how Leo had been a strong Gadeshi supporter something I explained by saying he was elected by a pro-Gadeshi faction in Rome. I say that because, at the time, I didn't want to go into Roman papal politics, but annoyingly, I'm going to have to today. Basically, at this time, the biggest issue in the Roman world was not the Frankish Empire and its disintegration, it was not the Gadeshi, it was not even the Saracen pirates that had cut off the church from its landholdings. No, it was a man named Formosus. Formosus was a Roman patrician of great influence and ambition, and he became a cardinal bishop at the important and vulnerable port of Ostia in 864. After that, he began a long career as a political operator, acting variously as a diplomat to Bulgaria and the point person in the fabulously well-thought-out election of Charles the Bald as emperor. Something went wrong in 872, and he apparently fled Rome as the result of a political dispute with our old friend Pope John VIII. The Pope demanded his return, he refused, and he was excommunicated. After John's brutal assassination, John's short-lived successor Marius I didn't do much, but he did recall Formosus and reinstate him to his post. Amongst the many, many dumb things John did, this dispute with Formosus would certainly be in contention for the longest-lasting impact, as a pro- and anti-Formosan stance seems to have taken over as the main political issue for the already fractious politics within the city. Politics which were given full reign by the short reigns and frequent elections over the next few years. Of course, this being the Papal States, this dispute also took on a religious cast, but I really don't want to get into that. So when I have indicated that the Gadeshi agents were influencing Papal elections, it should be understood in this context. The Gadeshi certainly had agents in the city, agents who were likely manipulating the elections, but those agents were working as outsiders playing off homegrown political divisions to get favorable outcomes. They did not take over the political process with their own freestanding party. A way to think of this is in terms of the modern lobbying system in Washington. Say what you will about the morality of the system, but it's much bigger than any of the individual players. Say a bill comes up proposing to regulate stapler production. The powerful stapler lobby will swing into action, visiting politicos, binding people to their side of the story, and if necessary, driving money into the right election funds to secure the outcome they want. Have they manipulated the system? Sure, but it isn't like they took over the government. If a new bill comes up a week later relating to hex key production, the stapler lobby doesn't care. They only care about staplers. 
despite all the talk about the Democrats or the Republicans being in the pocket of various groups, we should understand that those groups only care about the issues that affect their bottom line. If the stapler industry were suddenly destroyed by the rise of, say, electronic paper, the parties in Washington would still exist, as they represent a fundamentally different constituency than the industries that manipulate elections. So in Rome, the parties on the ground were concerned primarily with the issues that had sprung up around Formosus. The relationship with the Gadeshi was undoubtedly bound up with these issues, but the fact that the Gadeshi agents made plays to manipulate elections to secure one candidate or another does not mean that they owned Rome, or even favored one party over the other in the dispute. After all, why risk the long game by only buying off one party? Ultimately, theirs was but one hand amongst many pulling at the tiller of the ship of state, and for the people on the ground, the Gadeshi may have been an outside concern. That said, it seems rather likely that in the years after the coronation of Guy's emperor, all the parties in Rome gradually became a little bit wary of the situation. The Gadeshi had always been hard people to have as neighbors, and as they worked to consolidate power over all of northern Italy, the idea started to filter in that maybe an emperor guy, surrounding the papal states on almost all sides, might be a problem. Even Leo V got nervous, and he seriously considered seeking outside assistance. That said, though, the real trouble started in 891, when Leo died. It isn't clear which side of the Formosan dispute Leo was on, but after his death, all the issues we have been discussing came to a head. In 891, at around 74 years old, Formosus himself was elected pope. His eventful reign touched on many areas, but unfortunately for the Gadeshi, Formosus was not friendly. The chronicles indicate that Formosus was very suspicious of the power Guy now had, and so he did what every self-respecting pope with a Gadeshi problem did in those times. He wrote a letter to Germany. In particular, he wrote to Arnulf of Carinthia, who was now very securely king of Germany. You will recall that Arnulf had attempted to invade before, and at that time Berengar had agreed to be Arnulf's vassal to prevent an invasion. Since that time, Berengar had been badly trounced by Guy, but he was still hanging on and freely, probably sending Arnulf regular pleas for assistance. In the interim, Arnulf had worked to secure his position, a project that required beating up the western Franks, the Pomeranians, the Danes, the Normans, and the greater Moravians. Indeed, despite his lack of universalist ambition, Arnulf was a man far more in the mold of Charlemagne than many a monarch with ambitions to such a comparison. By 891, when Arnulf received Formosus' invitation, Arnulf was easily the most powerful king in Western or Central Europe. Given his track record, we should probably not be surprised that Arnulf took up the Pope's offer. After all, what's another fight for someone like Arnulf? But Arnulf was actually a lot more calculating than people give him credit for, and Formosus' invitation had something to sweeten the deal that Berengar's re repeated requests for aid did not, the promise of the imperial crown. And so Arnulf announced to the world his intention to take the imperial crown, and in 893 he sent his son, Zuitbold, south with an army to join Berengar in defeating Guy. One does not get the feeling that Berengar had a lot of skin in this game. Rather than being reinstated as king, he was likely to end up back in the role of regional functionary. Still, he and Zuitbold met Guy's forces and won a battle, and then pursued them. But we are then told that they were bought off by Guy's representatives, at which point Berengar went back to Friuli and Zuitbold returned home. More likely, there was some sort of peace deal whereby the land already taken were to remain in Berengar's hands. Still, one wonders if this was Berengar taking an opportunity to secure some sort of advantageous peace and be rid of the Germans. 
and Zweetbold was sort of forced to accept the situation. But either way, Arnulf was super not thrilled with his son or his vassal, particularly when the conquered territory flipped back to Guy. Next year, Arnulf led an army south himself. He took all the territory north of the Po River in a swift campaign, besieging Milan and taking it, and then he moved on to Pavia, the ancient capital of Lombardy. With little apparent effort, Arnulf took Pavia and drove Guy back. Arnulf paused long enough to be crowned king of Italy, and then followed Guy, but shortly thereafter, another of northern Italy's classic wildcard plagues broke out. Both armies' men were decimated, and Guy of Spoleto was killed. We don't really know how old he was, but he was king of Italy and Holy Roman Emperor for five years. In his life, he fought Saracens, Lombards, Franks, and the Pope, but it was the Mosquitoes that got him in the end. One might have expected this to be the end for the Gadeshi. Even with his army incapacitated, Arnulf's opposition was dead, and Guy's son Lambert was still quite young. And Arnulf still had the support of Formosus, who was actively writing letters to Arnulf confirming his offer of the imperial crown. Once again, the timelines are unclear, but it seems that Arnulf was convinced enough of his victory to withdraw north of the Alps for the season. But expecting the Gadeshi to bow out even now would be to ignore the whole of this miniseries, and would reckon without Egeltrude. Guy's wife Egeltrude moved quickly. She gathered what remained of her husband's army and moved on Rome. As usual, the Gadeshi army took it very quickly. This time, they captured the Pope, Formosus, without a lengthy siege, and persuaded him to crown Lambert instead of Arnulf. This he did, and then retired to the papal fortress with some Gadeshi guards to meditate on the change of his fortune. For Arnulf, things went from bad to worse. As he attempted to bring his army back across the Alps, they were ambushed by Rudolf of Burgundy, and it was apparently a very near-run thing. Arnulf went back north to rebuild his army, and sent his son to destroy Burgundy. This would occupy the two of them for several years. Italy was left reeling, with a huge power vacuum. Arnulf had shown how easily he could batter his way into the country, and the throne was being held by a teenager and his regent mother. But as Pope Formosus now knew, underestimating Egeltrude could be quite a dangerous mistake. Next time on Wittenberg to Westphalia, you will see the last stand of the Gadeshi, as Egelbert and her son face off against the power of the north. Things are not going well for the Gadeshi, where once they had looked so promising, but if we have learned anything in this series, it's that the Gadeshi do not go down without a fight. For now, remember to check out the website, the Facebook page, and rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.